Our scripture I'm reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. It says, So if you, are, uh, if you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who, think, who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your work in our lives, for the gift of faith and the gift of repentance by which we envision a whole new world. And God, that's what we need today. As we think about a weighty topic, we need receptive hearts. We know that the enemy doesn't want your people being a contrast society, but to blend right in. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and apply what we hear from your word this morning. Pray that by your spirit, you would break strongholds. So thankful that you can, so thankful that you do, so thankful that even in this room, there are testimonies of such victory because of your grace. And so as we turn to your word, we pray what your son prayed, Father, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. We pray this through Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, today we are in a pandemic, probably not the one you may be thinking of. I want to introduce another pandemic. I want to introduce a term that may make some parents in here feel uncomfortable, but it's something I think we need to be talking about. It's something I think that we need to normalize because of how rampant it is. Like it or not, we've got to be talking about it. We are in a pandemic of pornography. Again, I realize I don't mean to upset any parents by not giving you a warning, but we just have to be having these conversations in the church and in the home probably much earlier than you think. I was exposed at five years old, staying the night with a friend, long before smartphones and tablets. The national average is that kids are exposed at 11-year-olds by most account, but it seems to be reducing now to nine. By age 14, 94% of children will have seen it, and it's not going anywhere. Just recently, a friend here in town told me that his first grader was exposed at a school here in Abilene. And so as I begin to talk about it, let me, specifically to you parents, recommend a couple of resources to guide our conversations. Uh, one, just in talking about sexuality in general, is a book called The Talk. Seven Lessons to Introduce Your Child to Biblical Sexuality. So this is one good resource. And specifically thinking about pornography, there's a couple of books. One is called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Junior. And this is for younger kiddos. This is three to six. And there's an older version, Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, and it's from six to 11. And basically the way this defines it, kids, as you hear this term, maybe you've never heard what pornography is. Pornography is bad pictures. 
That's what it is. It's bad pictures. There's a lot of good pictures out there. There's a lot of bad pictures, though, as well. And bad pictures, what they do is they show the private parts of the body that our swimsuits are supposed to cover up. That's what bad pictures are. Our whole body is good. God created our bodies good, but our private parts are to remain private. And so taking pictures of them is very bad. And that's what we mean when we're talking about pornography. It's important to keep private parts private. So parents, let me commend these works to you to engage in these conversations again, probably earlier than you think because we're in a pandemic. Just consider this. Just consider this. The number of years it took for each product I'm going to mention to gain 50 million users. Airlines. It took 68 years for the airlines to get 50 million users. Cars took 62 years. Phones, 50 years. ATMs, 18 years. Cell phones, 12 years. YouTube, it only took four years to gain 50 million users. Facebook, three years. Pornhub, which is probably the most popular site, 19 days to gain 50 million users. It's a problem. The industry, the annual revenue is more than the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB combined. Just think about that for a moment. One out of every eight online searches and one out of every five mobile searches is for pornography. It takes up one third of the internet's bandwidth. This is even more staggering and I'm, I'm emotionally broke this morning, for one, just thinking about it all week, but for two, knowing how many it's affected you in this room. We've got to get serious about it. 68% of church-going men, 68%, and over 50% of pastors view it on a regular basis. Another study said 64% of Christian men 15% of Christian women admit to watching it at least once a month. 57% of pastors say that addiction to this is the most damaging issue in their congregation. According to Covenant Eyes, one out of three come across it weekly, sometimes when not even seeking it. This happened to me a few years ago, came to me. 61% of young adults seek it out at least once a month. 71% of teens have done something to hide what they do online from parents. And listen, parents, they're smarter than you are. And so I'll bring it up because we've got to be dealing with it. If these statistics are anywhere near being close to accurate, we've got a serious problem on our hands. We need to be talking about it. And Jesus brings it up today. If you're new here, not every week is quite this heavy, but most weeks are heavy because the word of God is heavy. And so we have been walking through the book of Matthew. This is what we do. We walk book by book through scripture and take paragraph by paragraph and verse by verse. And we're in Matthew. So let me encourage you to turn there. Page 760, if you're using one of our Bibles there in the chair. 
And Jesus, we've seen in this gospel, has been calling us to a certain way of life. It's told us who he is, and now Jesus calls us to be kingdom people. He gives us a way to live. And in Matthew 5, 13, we saw that we're to be salt and light. And the main thing about that is that we're distinct, we're different. That's why we're calling this series a contrast society. And when it comes to sexuality, we are indeed very distinct from the surrounding culture. So from this passage this morning, let's consider... Two points. One, lust is serious. Two, take lust seriously. So first, lust is serious from Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 27. Jesus, the king of the world, tells his people, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So now for the second time in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus quotes the old covenant law. You've heard it said in the law and the Ten Commandments and specifically in the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is sexual infidelity to one's spouse. It's clearly forbidden here in the law. It's pretty straightforward and usually it's pretty easy to keep. But remember what Jesus came to do to the law and the prophets. Chapter 5, verse 17. He came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to bring out its fullest and truest sense. So he's not merely looking for external conformity, right? In fact, look there at chapter 5, verse 20, what he says about our righteousness. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have to have more than just an external righteousness, but an internal. We saw there in that sermon that he's talking about a law on your heart righteousness, a a stony heart replaced by hearts of flesh righteousness. God cares about the heart. He not only wants us to avoid the terrible and destructive fruits of adultery, but it's seed, which is lust in the hearts. Jesus says, you look at a woman with lustful intents, lustfully, With the desire for her, you are an adulterer at heart. And that's what Jesus cares about. A little bit later in this gospel, he's going to tell us that it's not what goes in that makes us unclean. It's what comes out. And what comes out of the heart are things like evil thoughts, he says, and adultery. It comes from the heart and then leads to the external sin. And Jesus is concerned, yes, about the external sin, but he's also concerned about the internal desire. James says the same thing. James says, that when we're tempted, we're lured by our own desires. And then desire is conceived and gives birth to sin, which leads to destruction. That's the pattern of sin. It starts in desire, then leads to the action, then leads to destruction. In fact, the word Jesus uses here for lust, for lustful intent, is the word desire. Because that's the root issue. Desiring someone who's not your spouse. Wanting them too much. Coveting them. Jesus uses the same word here that's used in the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire her. And so we need to see the seriousness of the sin of lust. It's breaking the 7th commandment, Jesus says. It's also breaking the 10th commandment. And therefore, it's breaking the 1st commandment because that says you shall have no gods before me. So to desire something, to covet something more than honoring God is putting something before God. So that you'll dishonor God to get it, or if you don't get it, you're going to dishonor him. 
So lust is an idolatry issue. It's a worship issue. It's extremely important. Now, it's important to distinguish attraction from lust. You will notice attractive people. That's fine. That's not the issue. Luther said, we can't stop birds from flying over our head, but we can stop them from making a nest on our head. Attraction is a gift of God. Beauty is God's idea. He came up with it. It's that lingering second look and third look. It's when attraction turns to lust where we've crossed the line. God gave us attraction. God gave us a sex drive. And the main purpose is so that we would pursue marriage and then pursue oneness in marriage. That's one of its purposes. So don't despise attraction. Just use it according to God's design. And the Bible is very clear about lust and sexual sin. I recently heard a, a Southern Baptist leader say that the Bible seems to whisper at sexual sin. And I thought, I don't know what book he's reading, but it's not this one. The Bible screams at sexual sin. It is a huge issue, again, which makes us so clearly salt and light because the things we believe about this issue are so counter-cultural. I want you to see some places with me. So open your Bible, turn over to 1 Corinthians, flip to the right a little bit, through the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I just want you to hear from the Lord on this matter this morning. First Corinthians six, let's look together at verse 15. The Spirit through the Apostle Paul says, "Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know? that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For, as it is written, Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. That word in Greek is the word porneia. It's a term that means just general immorality. And what is the approach of the people of God when it comes to porneia? We flee from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's 1 Corinthians, flip, flip to 2 Corinthians, flip over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, 19, I want us to see the seriousness of it. This is for the church, this is for us, this is for every person in here. Now the works of the flesh are evidence Sexual immorality, there's the word, porneia. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. By the way, let me just read those again. Notice those are all the same category of sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. 
idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Flip to the next book. Flip over to Ephesians. It's Galatians 5. Flip to Ephesians 5. Verse 3. But sexual immorality, there it is again, porneia, and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone, church, who is sexually immoral or impure or who is a covetous, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Flip over to Colossians chapter 3. Skip over Philippians, go to Colossians to the right. Colossians 3, 5. What's our posture toward it? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. See how many times it's first on the list? Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians, the next book to the right, chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter four, let's pick it up in verse two. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from, here it is again, sexual immorality. It's a different word from adultery. It's a generic term that means any and all types of immorality. Verse four, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is one of the ways, one of the many ways that we're different. Countercultural, a contrast society. Lust is serious. Point number two, therefore we should take lust Seriously, Look back at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Matthew 5, 29, our Lord says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It says, tear out your eye, cut off your hand. Now, should we take Jesus literally here? Like, should we literally physically do this? I don't think so. I think Jesus is using hyperbole to prove a point. Hyperbole is extreme speech. Not meant to be taken literally, but to drive home a point. And that point is any sacrifice is necessary to pursue sexual purity. It's worth it. He wants to shock us. He wants, he wants 
He doesn't want us to literally tear it out, cut off our hand. Why? Well, because there are plenty of one-eyed perverts. Jesus knows that it ultimately comes from the heart. You don't need an eye to struggle with lust, and Jesus knows that. You can lust with your eyes closed. Maybe you've heard of the early church father, Origen. Origen took this command very literally and had tried a few different things first as he was trying to combat lust in the, I think he was third century, fourth century. It's always been a problem. That's why it's so prevalent here. And he literally castrated himself. It didn't solve the problem. He later realized he misinterpreted Jesus. Hermeneutics matter. The point is we should be deadly serious. That's his point. We should be deadly serious about fighting this sin. Jesus says we should eliminate it at all costs. I've shared this story with you before about Aaron Ralston. He was this young 27-year-old man from southern Utah. He loved to hike and kind of an independent spirit, loved to rock climb and he would often go just, you know, not really tell anybody what he was doing. And he parked his vehicle and he hiked and hiked. He went about seven miles to climb and he ends up slipping and falls into this ravine and this 800 pound boulder falls on his right arm. So it's stuck. He is literally stuck. He ended up being there a total of seven days. Pain like he never experienced before. He had to take drastic measures to stay dehydrated. I'll leave that for your imagination. And he realized on day five he was going to die there, so he wrote an epitaph on the rock, chiseled it in with his dull pocket knife until he realized, I have a choice here. I can lose my life. I've got this dull pocket knife. I can lose my arm. And so that's what he did. He chose the ladder and ended up hiking seven miles back to his truck. He lived to tell the tale and write a book about it called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. And I worry that, that some of you may be too casual about this sin. Like it's, it's no big deal, everybody does it. Well, Jesus says, no, it's a very big deal. Lose your lust or lose your life is what the king of the universe says in these verses. Romans eight thirteen: if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So why? Why should we take such drastic measures against lust? Well, the reason is because the stakes are so high. Let me give two reasons. One for the here and now and one for the, the then and there. One from, from what we know from experience here in this life now. And then one is the reason that Jesus gives us. So first, why should we take it so seriously? It's because it'll ruin your life. Here and now, it'll destroy your marriage. It'll take your joy. It will distort your view of sexuality. Increasingly, this stuff is violence and degrading. It's a distortion of how we view the image of God. It turns people into objects. It dehumanizes, humanizes. It's linked with all kinds of problems. Social anxiety, depression, low motivation, lack of productivity, guilt, shame. It decreases interest in one's spouse. It increases divorce. It causes all kinds of dysfunctions. It is idolatrous self 
worship. It severs God's gift of sexuality from relationship with one person for a lifetime the way he designed it. It's the opposite of what God intends for our bodies and for our relationships, which is tender and self-giving and others-focused. And it creates addicts. It literally rewires your brain. See, arousal releases dopamine, which is the neurochemical that leads to the reward center, which creates nerve pathways that encourage us to do it again, making it easier to do it the next time, making it harder not to do it the next time. Your brain connects the pleasure with the activity. And at the same time, with arousal, the brain releases oxytocin and vasopressin, which chemically bonds us to the other person. It's what brain science is now showing us. We knew it all along, right? 1 Corinthians 6 and Genesis 2. One flesh with one person. That was God's design. And so when it's severed from relationship, we're becoming, to use the language of 1 Corinthians 6, one body with a prostitute. In this case, it's just a pixeled prostitute. When it's a screen, you're literally bonding with the screen. And adolescents are more susceptible to forming addictions than adults because the dopamine neurons in the brain's reward center, it's much more active. They have an exaggerated plasticity in response to addictive stimulus. The brain is in process of being developed. And so it hijacks it. And now we know that it hijacks the brain in the same way cocaine does. It stimulates the same areas. It releases the same chemicals. And so parents, wake up. Letting kids have unmonitored phone access is like encouraging an alcoholic to sleep on a cot on the floor of a liquor store. And because of the way we're wired, the stuff never satisfies. You need more and more stimulation to reach the same effect. There was a study done in 2015 by Cambridge that found that pornography use can drive novelty seeking is what they called it. And so users need more and more extreme and disgusting content over time in order to achieve the same level of arousal. It escalates because of its addictive nature. You enjoy it less and less, but you want it more and more. The prophet Jeremiah would say, we're trying to hew out broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so it destroys your life here and now in so many ways. And so many of you can attest to it today that it is a life destroyer a joy zapper. You cannot have an intimate relationship with the Lord and be looking at this stuff. You cannot be useful for the Lord and be looking at this stuff. But what reason does Jesus give us here on why we should take lust seriously? He says it there in verse 29. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away for, because it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for, because it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So get serious about repenting of this sin For, because, Jesus says, if you don't, you will go to hell. It's not my words, it's his. 
You know, amputation typically occurs because something else might kill you. Infection may spread to the bone or whatever it may be, and so you amputate a limb. Figurative amputation is better than facing hell. Jesus says we're talking about eternity. Jesus is saying we should take lust seriously because lust is so serious. And so how can we get there? Maybe today is a trajectory-setting day. Maybe you don't struggle at all. Seems like increasingly you'd be the minority, but praise God. But still listen up because people need your help. If these statistics are anywhere near true, listen to what I'm about to give some practical tips because you could be a means by which God helps others. Part of being a church member is a commitment to help other members fight sin and walk with the Lord. So as we close, let's consider, much like we did with anger, a nine-step battle plan against lust. There'll be a little bit of overlap actually with our battle plan against anger because sin is sin. So first... Just like with anger, realize that you can gain victory. Some of you don't even believe that right now. It's been so long, you're so entrenched, but you got to believe God's word and God's power. You can. Many in this room have and are. Let me read from Romans chapter 6, verse 11. So you also, Christian, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members. And by the way, a lot of people think the members here are talking about our our body, our vessels. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you're not under law, but under grace. A few verses later in Romans 6, 17, we read this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And, have, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. There is hope for lasting change. Sin will not have dominion over you. It may require the hardest work you've ever put in, but you can. And so be optimistic. You're a new creation in Christ. Realize you can gain victory. Number two, view it as war. Because it is. Jesus says we can't take it seriously enough. J.C. Ryle says the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. And so we may have to take drastic measures. Follow the example of Job. Job says, if I made a covenant with my eyes, how then could I gaze at a virgin? We take thoughts captive. Just listen to the the warfare imagery of 2 Corinthians 10, how violent this language is. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey God. 
Christ. And so we wage war by violently arresting ungodly thoughts and we take them captive for Christ. See it as war. Number three, see it as a worship issue. Again, because it is. It's an idolatry issue. Remember, breaking the seventh commandment is breaking the tenth commandment, which is breaking the first commandment. Lust is desiring someone who's not your spouse, and you covet and you replace God with lust. That's how we got to see it. It's a replacement of God. And we're replacing him with whatever, whatever it is we may be seeking through lust, whether it be to relieve stress or to gain comfort or to exercise power or merely for sensual pleasure. You want that more than you want to honor God. And so when that temptation comes, we have a choice to make. Which God will we worship? Fourth, watch and pray. Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Did you know that? He wants you to be destroyed, and he knows this is one of the main ways he can do that. Be on guard. Avoid temptation. Know your weak spots. If you were your own enemy... On this issue, how would you take yourself down? It's a good thing to reflect upon. And then shore those up. Shore up. Is it a certain time of day? Is it, is it, it's usually late, by the way. It's usually late for most people. But is it a certain time of a day? Is it a certain location? Is it a certain show? Is it even music? I don't know. What is it for you? Watch and pray. Fifth, get accountability. Those of you who have been battling this already know you will get nowhere on your own. There is no biblical category for the Lone Ranger Christian. The Lone Ranger Christian becomes the Dead Ranger. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God says, church, take care. How do we take care? He tells us, how do we avoid sin? From hearing exhortations from fellow church members daily we need one another to help us from being hardened by sin James 5 says confess your sins to one another and pray for one another this is one of the real values of D groups discipleship groups our ministry where it's three to six men or three to six women trying to go deep together and I realize sometimes it takes sometimes it doesn't work out sometimes it takes a long time to gain trust to get here but this ought to be the goal this is a, a place where it can be safe to confess sin and fight sin together someone who can ask you the hard questions who can exhort you six build high walls in other words, restrict access. 
metaphorically, tear out an eye, cut off a hand, make it really hard to sin. It's much harder today than it used to be due to smartphones and tablets, but get serious, get radical even. Some counseling men, well, you know, I really can't get rid of my smartphone. Do you believe the words of Jesus? Well, I need the internet. Get serious. Are there stores you need to avoid? Are there streaming services you need to cancel? Are there devices you need to get rid of? Is there travel you need to stop? Is there a purchasing ability that needs to be restricted? Or is there an app store that needs to be password protected that you don't have? Is there browser access that needs to be eliminated? If you say, whoa, 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 I'm not there. If you continue to sin in this way, Jesus would ask, are you serious about following me? Cut out an eye, tear off a hand. Because without high walls, you'll just continue to fall. Listen to Proverbs chapter 6. Speaking of adultery, Jesus was speaking of adultery at heart. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Some of you are just played with fire and you're regularly burned. Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? And so build high walls. It may cost you. Buy covenant eyes. Buy any other filter. There's so many today. Blockers and software. High walls won't change the heart, but they can guard the heart while you do the work of heart change. Seventh, wield the sword. Be in the word. Know the word. Remember Matthew chapter 4? This is exactly how Jesus fought sin. He's tempted by the enemy and he quotes Bible. And so know some of these passages. Know Matthew 5 by heart. Memorize Ephesians 5 or 1 Thess 4, 1 Corinthians 6. Know the Bible's teaching on this issue. Probably my favorite resource on this issue is a book called Finally Free by Heath Lambert. A phenomenal book. I think probably every man ought to read regardless. Eighth, put off, put on. Remember Ephesians 4, put off your old self, renew the mind, put on the new self. See, it's not enough merely to put off. It's not merely enough to kill sin. It must be replaced. Here's how John Piper put it. He says, we must fight fire with fire. The fire of lust pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, even the terrible warnings of Jesus will fail. We must fight it with the massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flicker of lust pleasure in the conflagration of holy satisfaction. You know it's a dead-end road. And God promises superior pleasure. Put off, put on. Put off lust, put on purity. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Ephesians 5, 4, let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Put off selfish lust, put on love. Love realizes that the object of your lust is a person made in the image of God. A person who has a father 
and a mother. A person who, in most cases, doesn't want to be there and actually hates the consumer and often has to take drugs to get through it and often vomits after the scene is finished. Put off, put on. And then ninth, finally, look to Jesus. You know, the nature of this sin carries with it an added layer of guilt and shame. And so be reminded of the gospel. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Jesus is for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for this sin. The enemy would have you wallow in guilt and shame. And so we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves as we fight this battle. One of my favorite Luther quotes, got to do it at least three times a year. Listen to how he handles his sin. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. And so look to Christ. Look to the gospel. Remember what he's done. Remember the new covenant, the cross and the spirit. We have full and final forgiveness of sins and we have the gift of the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. Remember that this gospel, Matthew, doesn't end in Matthew chapter 5. It's headed somewhere. It's headed to a hill called Calvary where we learn that it's nothing but the blood that can wash us. And we learn that it does. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood. We learn that Jesus paid it all. If you've trusted Christ, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. God looks upon you and he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. If you haven't trusted in Christ, you can be forgiven. Turn to Christ. Look to him, turn from your sin and turn to him. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that struggling saints? Look to Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, blessed, remember, happy, fulfilled, content, flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Father, I know that there are so many in this room in a battle. So pray that you would grant repentance. Pray that the words of your son would rest heavier than they've ever rested upon the souls of many in this room and there would be a resolve to turn from sin, confess it and fight against it, fight for a pure heart. So please grant repentance in this room even right now.
Pray for all of those who name the name of Christ that you would increase in us a hatred for the things you hate. And God, would you give us a passion to care for one another, to help one another fight sin and follow you. And God, we're so incredibly grateful for the cross where Jesus says, it is finished. Where our shortcomings are nailed to the cross. To wonders here that we confess our worth and our unworthiness, our value fixed, some paid at the cross. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.